0: I like this little psalm. But before we get too deep into it and what it actually says, there's just three quick things I want to tell you about Psalms more broadly that this little one kind of highlights really nicely. First of all, Psalms are rich in theology. Theology. I mean, last week we were thinking about how they can help us interpret and navigate life, you know, because they're so good at capturing our lived experience. Well, today We might focus on the other side of that coin. They're not just good for capturing our emotions. They also teach us good theology. You can see what I mean from the first couple of verses there in this little psalm. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I mean, God created everything, and so it all belongs to God. That is vital theology right there. And the more we lock in that kind of truth, the more we start to understand God and us and everything else in this cosmos. So uh, Psalms, uh, I have to tell you, are rich in theology. The second thing is that because they're poems or songs, they often say things in twos. Things tend to come in twos. And and you can see that too in those first couple of verses. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. I mean, that's two ways of saying the same thing if you look at it long enough. And again in verse 2, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Again, those two lines, you know, they pair up to create the same point and so that's the second thing i wanted to point out to you as you read the psalms be on the lookout for this this doubling idea thoughts tend to come as thought pairs and the third thing i thought i'd say is that you can also go a long way to unpacking these psalms if you look out for structure as you go structure so zoom out with me now across the whole of that psalm 24 on that page there I'll show you what I mean about looking for structure in these psalms. It seems to me that the next block of the of the psalm there, verses three to six, all fit together and are then marked off as a as a paragraph, I guess, by that little word at the end, selah. That's a word we don't actually know the meaning of anymore, or you know they would have translated it for us into English. But if nothing else, it seems to be marking off that paragraph there, verses three to six, and then so too, if you look. Further down, verses 7 to 10 all seem to fit together and and are then also marked off at the end by that little word again, Selah. Which just kind of leaves those first two verses we were looking at before, verses 1 and 2. And and thinking about structure, I wonder if maybe they're meant to be like, you know, an umbrella over the whole thing. A a kind of theological framework for making sense of the whole song. Anyway, I mightn't be right about that structure. But see what I mean? If you think that way, uh, at least it helps that you know, helps you to break it up as you try to process what's going on in the Psalm. Anyway, there's three things you might keep in mind as you look through Psalms, but let's get into it. Let's let's do this now and get in and see what is going on in this particular Psalm, Psalm twenty four. Starting with, of course, that that really good theology up front in verses one and two the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I mean, that's more than just theological framework for this little psalm, isn't it? That's the fundamental theological bedrock of the whole Bible. This is the first thing we must understand about God, on the one hand, and and everything else, on the other hand. Everything is God's, because God created it all. This is what David's whole thought system is based upon, and, and so too it must be the the backbone of our thinking. This is the fundamental creator and creation distinction of Genesis, that God created everything and so everything belongs to God. And nothing else is God because everything else is only created by God. We tend to get a bit sidetracked in Genesis 1, but in these two verses of Psalm 24, David's probably summed up you know, the primary take-home message that we absolutely must get out of it. God is the one who created everything. And so it is God to whom everything belongs. Nothing could be more fundamental to our whole existence and our very identity. We were created by God. And yet in a way, David also expands here a little bit on Genesis chapter 1 in these two short verses because he tells us more specifically in these words that it is the Lord who created it all if you read back those first few words it's the Lord who created these things and owns these things and then leave a finger there in Psalm 24 in your Bible and and flick back to Genesis 1 on page 1 of your Bible and you'll see what I mean Cast your eye all the way through Genesis 1 and you'll see that we're repeatedly told that it is God who created and did all these things. But Psalm 24 was more specific than that. It was the Lord who created. Some of you may have spied on page 1 in that. In the second creation account that follows from Genesis 2 verses 4 onwards, a much more intimate creation account We're indeed told there that it was the Lord God who created. And from then on, you know, the Lord God is mentioned regularly through the Bible. And so I guess Psalm 24 opens a bit more like Genesis 2. Just to be pedantic, just for clarification, it's more like Genesis 2. It's zoomed in to this earth as its kind of sphere and to the more personal and relational view of God, the Creator, as Lord. You see, here's the reason I'm telling you all this you and I read our Bibles, we tend to gloss over that word, Lord, in Genesis 2 and in Psalm 24 and everywhere else in between and along the way. (laughs) But every time you see that word, Lord, in all capitals, it's actually the personal name of God. It's the personal name of God that he used for himself when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush of Exodus chapter 3, if you know that story. It's the personal name of God that you may have heard translated in some English translations as Yahweh or Jehovah. Jews in Hebrew wouldn't speak the name out of reverence, so they just said Adonai, which is where we now get this word Lord from in English in all capitals. But it's actually the personal name. So however which way you like to say this, uh, lock this much in about that little word. Lord is not a title for God. It's his personal name. So every time we read it, that word should remind us that God is a very specific being, not just a generic concept. And it should also mark him in our minds as very distinct from every other God that people might hope in. And it tells us that God revealed himself to us very personally. He is a loving, relational, close God. So if we process that, we now, I think, have the theology of those first couple of verses even better. Even better. This loving, personal, specific God. Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai, Lord. He created everything. Everything belongs to Him. And so that is who, deep down, you and I need to be connected to. Whether we know it or not, the Lord. Not just the modern, generic concept of God, but specifically, our very personal, close, relational God, Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai lord and David leads us straight into that that deep down desire that's buried inside of us in these two paragraphs uh, that follow uh, verse 3 who shall ascend the hill of the lord and who shall stand in his holy place again see the way that these ideas tend to come in pairs in hebrew poetry verse verse 3 is two ways of saying the same thing isn't it to ascend the hill of the lord is to stand in his holy place and david hasn't first paused in in this particular psalm to you know explain to us why we would want to ascend the hill of the lord to be with him he, he just assumes it here that we all have this deep down desire to be connected to our creator He cuts right to it here because he wants to get on with the big question around that, that he he has to raise here. How can we be connected with our Creator? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And he answers it right away in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Again, there's there's thought pairs going on in that verse, and two of them this time. I mean, clean hands, pure heart, same, same, isn't it? And not lifting up our soul to what is false, or, or, or swearing deceitfully, same, same, I reckon. And furthermore... Uh, I both lines actually double up again in another sense because they fit together like a positive and negative pair. That is to say that having clean hands, a pure heart, is the positive kind of way of saying that we don't lift our soul to what is false or swear an oath to deceit if we were to put it in the negative form. In other words, I think those who will ascend the hill of the Lord, verse 3, are those who do not defile themselves with the various false gods and idols of this world, but who faithfully follow him. Yahweh, verses 1 to 3. And they follow him alone. Or in another way of thinking of this, verse 4 is actually still proclaiming the Lord, just as much as it's challenging us in what we do. We follow faithfully when we follow Yahweh and him alone. That verse 4 there, anyway, is probably, I don't know, I reckon it's the hardest one to crack in this short psalm. And I've thought about it all kinds of ways, but this is where I've ended up. (laughs) As the comprehensive answer to the big question of life in verse 3, we get given four ways of saying the same answer, twice in the positive and twice in the negative, that those who trust and follow God faithfully are the ones who will be with Him in the end. I reckon the NIV translation gets the sense of this difficult verse, real crisp, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. And then I reckon that first whole block there is as simple as that, as simple but I guess as profound as that. So much so that the second half of this paragraph more or less just repeats the same truth, just in different words. So if you can handle one more layer of thought pairing in this psalm, the second half of the paragraph is the same as the first, I think. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. In other words, verse 5 It parallels the thought of verse 3 and verse 6 parallels verse 4. Trust and follow the Lord, verse 4, verse 6. Trust and follow the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Jacob. Follow him and follow him alone. And you will receive blessing, verse 3, verse 5. You will receive righteousness from the Saviour God. You will be able to climb his mountain and stand in his holy place. Selah. And so it's those who receive blessing from the Lord, who receive righteousness from God, in verse 5, who who will be with their Creator. And if we faithfully trust him, verse 4, we will surely receive it. And so the theology is still good in this part. And it's getting real deep at this point. And yet, as I say, it's profoundly simple. It, it is the Lord God who created, part one. It is the Lord God who saves, part two. And the last part really is just a sheer celebration of this Lord God, this creator, saviour, Lord God, with with a glorious perspective uh, factored into it all. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And the next two verses just doubling up to repeat all of that. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. It's all about God, this psalm. God is the source of our salvation, the source of our hope, the source of who we are in him. It's deeply personal as it it sings about our God. This this is no distant deity or vague concept. And now with all these new names in this last paragraph. It is the King of Glory, the Lord of hosts, who is leading us through those gates to be with our God. Ah... Wait, what just happened? (laughs) The the Lord is going through the gates into the Lord's holy place? Yes. Selah. We should meditate on that. But I should probably mention that David wrote this psalm about 3,000 years ago and that it's thought to have been the festive song that David sang when he had the Ark of the Lord brought into Jerusalem. Some of you may be familiar with that story. It's in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you want to dig it up later. And it's also thought that Israel then, as a nation, continued to sing this psalm afterwards, you know, corporately and liturgically, in remembrance of that event. It was a big thing for the people of Israel in the time of David's kingship. The ark being carried into Jerusalem to provide a connection between God and his people in the temple, or tabernacle as it was at that time. And yet it's almost impossible for you and I to sit here 3,000 years after that event and, and read this little psalm without seeing the more glorious fulfillment of David's words here in Jesus Christ. We know from the rest of the Bible that the ark and the tabernacle and temple that it was placed in and, and even Jerusalem itself were just temporary things, a shadow of the good things coming. We know that whatever the people of David's time were singing about, it has been fulfilled now in a much more profound way. Because a thousand years after David sang these words, God himself dwelt here on earth in the flesh and blood. The King of glory is Christ Jesus. And not just through the gates into Jerusalem and up the hill to the temple, did, Jer- did Jesus go? No. What do the scriptures tell us? He ascended back to God's place in heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, and where all power and glory and dominion and authority has been given to him, because he is the King of glory, he is the Lord strong and mighty. He came to us and conquered sin and death for us, and now he has ascended back to his rightful place. This is the gospel according to David in this little psalm. Because here's the thing you need to know about David he's a sinner, and he knows he's a sinner. As he sings these words, the gates ought not open if it was just for David's sake. But he is with the Lord, the King of glory, and the gates have to open up for him. You see, part three of this psalm here is, is not just a random chorus thrown on the end. Part three is what makes this song, it's what makes part two possible. David knows he will ascend and and go through the gates only because he's in the company of the Lord. And so this psalm here is is just a spectacular eruption of David's joy because the Lord God Almighty is with him. And the emphasis, do you see, all, all the way through this psalm, the emphasis is all placed squarely on God. So David doesn't ask the gates to be opened, you know, because he's the king of Israel but because he accompanies the ark of the lord in david's humility he may be conceding that he that he can't go through those gates by his own heart and hands his focus in this song is where it should be on his savior god it's just gospel celebration this song It's almost, in a really funny kind of way, it's almost like an Old Testament, I don't know, song pattern kind of thing for for John 3.16 in a way. For, For God so loved the world, verses 1 and 2, that he gave his only son, verses 7 to 10. That whoever trusts in him should not perish, but have eternal life, verses 3 to 6. And we might spin out a little bit that David wrote this old psalm so theologically in tune with what much later scriptures have now made perfectly clear to you and I. How did David know to write these things so long before the King of Glory, Jesus, came? Well, when he came, the King of Glory answered that for us, as it happens. In Mark chapter 12, and verse 36... Speaking about one of David's other psalms, Jesus said that David himself, in the Holy Spirit, said those things. Whether David, carried away in the Holy Spirit, knew the full depth of what he was seeing at the time is hard for us to say. Huh? But either way, this is the gospel. This is the gospel according to David in Psalm 24. Everything is the Lord's. Those who are faithful to him will receive salvation. He himself has come and opened up the gates to life for us. Selah. The typical way the world asks that big question of life in verse 3 goes something like this. Do you think you've done enough to get through the pearly gates? Or various other forms that all tragically put the emphasis back on us instead of on our Saviour God, the King of Glory. There's a correction here to tune in to David's Gospel as he sees it. Our certain hope of heaven rests entirely on our loving, close and personal God. He created us. He gives us blessing and righteousness and salvation if we but faithfully trust Him and reject every competing idol. He Himself has come to us. He Himself has opened that gate for us. We may go in now because we're with Him. So Christian, take your assurance from this beautiful psalm. If you have repented of your sin and put your trust in, in Jesus Christ, the King of glory, then you are granted righteousness. You are granted blessing. You are granted salvation in his name. It's entirely on him. And it's entirely, therefore, certain. You are with him. So the application here this week is simply for you to sing. Sing and celebrate your King. And if you haven't come to trust in this God of the Scriptures yet, but you you hear this song and read these words and find yourself wanting to come to trust this God, then, then do it. God is calling you with this gospel song in Psalm 24. Come to him in repentance and trust and complete dependence. And the gates to life will be open for you too. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for the the privilege to have your scriptures open in front of us today. We thank you for what we learn here, that you are not a distant or uncaring God, but very personal and close. We thank you that you condescended from your glory to meet us here on earth in in Jesus, your Son, only so that you could take our sin on your shoulders and have it nailed to that cross. Help us, Father, now to, to trust and follow you faithfully not put hope in other things but put all of our hope in you and you alone our king of glory you have opened up the gates to life for us so help us now just as david shows us here just to celebrate your goodness to us to celebrate your victory for us to celebrate your salvation in Jesus' name amen